0: This is a 720 to go podcast from Chicago's WGN Radio 720. This podcast is sponsored by ADM. As one of the world's largest agricultural processors, ADM is uniquely positioned to serve the world's growing needs for abundant food and renewable energy. ADM.
1: When it comes to the business of America's farmland, you need the information from the people who know it best. That's why we bring you AgriCast with Orion Samuelson and Max Armstrong.
0: And we say good morning on this Saturday morning, our weekly get-together to talk about the world's most basic industry producing food for you and me. We'll be talking agriculture and we'll be talking about some of the events going on. And I especially want to uh, mention the fact that uh, our market interview this morning will be with uh, Dr. Michael Cordonier, who is uh, a gentleman that we've known for years and we've talked to for years. He is an expert on what's going on in Brazil and Argentina and South American agricultural production and exports. And uh, we're going to spend a fair amount of time in the second half of the show this morning talking to Dr. Mike. Always a pleasure to do that. Oh, and I do want to mention uh, again, I tip my hat to the folks at Blaine's Farm and Fleet because they did not open on Thanksgiving Day. There are 4,400 people on the staff at various planes, farm, and fleet locations around the country. And the two brothers that started the company years ago said, we are not going to be open on holidays because we want our workers to be able to spend time with family and friends. So they were closed on Thanksgiving Day, but they're open now, of course, full-time until Christmas and New Year's. And uh, the holiday season means that there will be several market uh, shutdowns for the holidays, and so we're in what I call the holiday trading period to uh, cover the markets at the Board of Trade and the Mercantile Exchange. But good to have you along here this morning, and I, I have been doing the Saturday morning show from my studio in Scottsdale, Arizona the past couple of months. Uh, working with some doctors at Mayo to do something about lower back pain. That's enough of a medical discussion from that standpoint. But the weather in the desert has been very unusual. We had a thunderstorm yesterday morning that moved patio furniture around and that uh, caused some flash flooding. And in the last two weeks, We have received, uh, in my rain gauge in the backyard here in Arizona, a week ago in three days of rain, we got two inches of rain in the gauge. And then yesterday uh, morning uh, before sunrise, we got another inch of rain. And uh, the snow level in high country in Arizona was down to... uh, 4,500 feet. So uh, some of the mountains in this part of the uh, country were snow-covered. Luckily, none in the valley where Phoenix and Scottsdale and a lot of the towns are situated. But my rancher friends here in Arizona were delighted to get two inches a week ago and uh, to get another inch yesterday because the average annual rainfall in Phoenix, Arizona, is eight inches. So in two days, we got uh, three of those eight inches for the year. And uh, rancher friends, Andy Grossetta, who was president of the National uh, Association of Cattlemen, uh, was pleased as could be because it did revive some of the pastures that had been so very dry. But it's um, cooler than usual this uh, time of the year. Not uh, freezing here in low country, but certainly in high country. And I really had to feel for the golfers and the tourists who came to the valley for some sun and some golf. And whatever else over the Thanksgiving Day holiday weekend because it wasn't uh, good golfing weather it wasn't good Sun weather either so anyway that's our weather report from the Southwest this morning and one of the things that uh, I'm going to share with you this morning is information on some of the products that we get for agriculture that we sort of take for granted like fertilizer production. Where does it come from? And we have an interesting guest to talk about the challenge of getting fertilizer ready and to farm country, to farmers who need it at the proper times. We're going to be talking to Sherry Cook of the Mosaic Company. So that will be coming up when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. Sherry Cook is technical sales manager for Mosaic Company, which has a long history. goes back uh, many years. As a matter of fact, I go back with it to 1962 <laughs> when the first mine in Canada was uh, drilled. But now they've got three of them. Is that right?
1: They do, actually. You were at Esterhazy. Yes. And there are, we're just in the process of. Not finishing, because they're never finished completely right, because they constantly dig. But um, we have the third shaft drilled, and we're actually pulling some ore out of that to produce potash.
0: People often ask, what is there in Canada that is so important to agriculture? So tell us what your products do.
1: So one of our products in Canada that we, we produce several, and primarily potash, right. comes out of Canada. And so we have a couple different products there that we work with. One of them is Pegasus, which, like you, went down shaft um, 3,000 feet below ground. We produce a red potash, and it's a 0,062% 0, 0, potassium. And then we also produce white potash, um, which is right outside of Regina, and we that's a solution mine, we call it. So we find these huge underwater lakes, and we uh, inject a solution in that, and the potassium rises, and so we pump that out, and that becomes a white potash. And so we have multiple different products, and then we also have a performance product that we work with that we produce at Estrahazy as well, and that's called Aspire, and that's a unique product in the sense that it's, It's a compressed product with a micronutrient boron. And so it's a a potash plus boron in every single crystal that goes out into the field.
0: So what does all this mean to a farmer, to a producer?
1: So ultimately at Mosaic, our, our goal and our mission statement is to help the world grow the food that it needs. And so how can we help today's farmer increase their yields cuz ultimately let's say by 2050 or how we'll have over 9 billion people right. in the world right so how can we help our farmers raise a higher yield more food and so that's our goal is to be able to provide the nutrients that they need to be able to do that
0: and your the company is based in florida
1: Right, our corporate headquarters is in Tampa, Florida. We have a facility in Plymouth, Minnesota. And then there are several of us who are spread throughout North America that um, work various different geographies.
0: So do we have other parts of the world where we produce potash and uh, the fertilizers that we use? We do. um,
1: So we focus on potash, mosaic does, and phosphates. Mm -hmm. And so our potash mines are in Canada. We have one in New Mexico. And then our, our phosphate mines are in Florida and so and we also have different joint ventures and different agreements in other countries in Saudi Arabia in Brazil and other areas so that we can ensure in the future that we can still provide products for our customers
0: so what country is your biggest market
1: Uh, the US would be our biggest market Mm -hmm. about 45 or 48 percent of the products that we produce here in the US stay domestic and then the rest we ship throughout the world
0: it's an interesting logistics situation, isn't it? Getting fertilizer when farmers need it to the places that they need it. So are you in the transportation business also?
1: I am not, thankfully, in the transportation business, yeah. but I do more of the sales side of things. Mm-hmm. But you're right. It uh, gets, gets to be challenging, and a lot of my market, and I work in the, the northern tier of the Corn Belt mm-hmm. along the Canadian border, and a lot of it's run by rail. Uh, we do a lot of barge work up and down the Mississippi River and, um, and and trains. And so a lot of customers that I work with are set up with large facilities that will hold 20 to 30 to 40,000 ton of product, of fertilizer. And so we can ship them then 100 car train, 105 car train at a time. So that helps because then they have the product. Um, But always a a logistic challenge, trying to get it in time and have it in place when needed.
0: So when is your big sales season? What time of the year is it? Right now. Right now. Um,
1: So it gets applied in spring, fall and spring. Um, But for me, working as a technical sales manager now is now to March. As soon as the farmers start getting busy in the field then it quiets down for me. But then at that point we're hoping that everything we've done all winter is coming to fruition.
0: And farmers plan ahead, hopefully, so that right now they're planning ahead for 2020.
1: Absolutely, that's our goal and we help our retailers and local field advisors do that.
0: So farm equipment companies talk about new machines and we talk about new crop protection products What do you talk about in the fertilizer industry?
1: So we talk about what makes us unique and the products that we have that are different. And not everybody makes enhanced products like we do. So we're fortunate to where we have a product called MicroEssentials, for example, where it has our macronutrients, our nitrogen, our phosphorus, and sulfur, and it also has zinc. So it covers a really broad spectrum as far as farmers in the U.S. and in North America. And then we also make another product I had mentioned, Aspire, which is potash with boron. And so what we're trying to do is to be able to provide these unique type products that nobody in the market has today that will help our farmers grow a better crop.
0: I've heard the word Aspire. Mm How long has that been the trade name for you?
1: So Aspire is our baby in our family. Right. And I would say Aspire is, is about five, six years old, mm-hmm. and so fairly new. In the in the fertilizer industry, we don't release products as quickly as the chemistry or the seed market does. And so um, we're we're happy to have that in our family.
0: So what are the advantages of Aspire for a farmer? in the crop business?
1: So Aspire is potash and boron all in the same crystal, in the same granule, so to speak. And so what makes it unique is say a farmer does a soil test and it shows that he needs boron. And so it's a micronutrient so we don't need as much of it as what we do say with our nitrogen and our phosphorus. And so it has a half a percent of boron in Aspire and so The unique part about that, and the really good part about that, is we get that distribution throughout the field. So we have two nutrients in every granule that goes out across the field, and we get much better distribution versus dumping a 50-pound bag into a blend and spreading that through a field. So more touch points in that crop in the field, which our goal is a better yield.
0: Well, thank you for your time, and thank you for enlightening me and hopefully our viewers and listeners across the country a visit with Cherry Cook of the Mosaic Company. It is 24 minutes after 5 o'clock here on the Saturday morning show. There's an event taking place right now in Atlanta, Georgia, that I'm betting a few of you who are listening at the moment were involved in this event, oh, back in the 60s and 70s and 80s, the National 4-H Congress. National 4-H Congress for years was held at the Hilton Hotel in Chicago in November, and I'm sure a lot of you uh, listening uh, attended the National 4-H Congress. It was an honor to be selected to participate in the Congress, and then, oh, about the time that the, the National Association of Farm Broadcasters left Chicago with its convention, and about the time we had the International Livestock Show at the Amphitheater in Chicago, we also had the National 4 H Congress. And every year, I hear from former 4-H'ers who still remember the excitement of coming to Chicago for the National 4-H Congress. But now it's being held in Atlanta, Georgia. It moved to that area, and uh, it's on this weekend after Thanksgiving Day. It started, and about 1,000 4-H club members from across the country have gathered in Atlanta. And today, Secretary of Agriculture Sonny Perdue will be in Atlanta to uh, address the 4-H Club members who are attending the National 4-H Congress. And so congratulations to those 4-Hers that have been selected to participate in the National 4-H Congress. And uh, today... You'll be hearing Secretary of Agriculture Sonny Perdue at that event. At the end of this week, uh, we got another indication that the ongoing trade discussions between China and the United States that are not yet uh, close to solution, at least in my opinion. But uh, we did get a report that it is having an impact on agriculture, certainly, because Deer and Company, the day before Thanksgiving, warned of lower earnings next year after reporting a decline in quarterly profits hurt by the trade tensions, but in addition to that trade situation, poor weather in the U.S. farm belt slowed equipment purchases by farmers. In response to an uncertain business environment, the company announced a voluntary separation program I guess that's a retirement program for its salary employees, which is estimated to cost it about $140 million next year, but ultimately projected to contribute to an annual savings of $150 million. The world's largest farm equipment maker said it was also reviewing the overseas footprint and would focus on growing its more profitable parts and services business. The chief financial officer, Ryan Campbell, the Deer & Company, said 2019 was a challenging year. And boy, if anybody knows that, farmers do, not only because of the trade situation, but also because of the weather. It has been a challenging year, and I would guess a lot of you right now are hoping that uh, we won't be talking about a new challenge uh, for quite a few years because we don't want to see another challenging year such as the one that we're just closing out across North America and across the United States. The uh, holiday season is going to have an impact on trading hours, of course, because uh, we'll have several days of market shutdowns at the board and the mercantile exchange for the holiday season. do want to make one more comment about the interview with Sherry Cook of the Mosaic Company. At one time, it was known as the International Minerals Corporation, IMC, and I had the opportunity in the early 1960s to travel to Esterhazy, Canada, for the opening and the dedication of that 3,000-foot shaft, taking it down to the uh, heavy uh, supply of potash in the prairie provinces of Canada. And it's the first time and the only time I've ever been 3,000 feet underground with a very slow-moving elevator taking people down and then back up. have to say it uh, was a little uncomfortable when you realize that you're 3,000 feet deep in the soil of Canada. Well, we're coming up to the halfway mark. We're coming up to news uh, and other activity that we're going to be talking about. So uh, stay with us here on WGN. And uh, good morning to those of you who have joined us here during the 5 o'clock hour on the Saturday morning show. And thanks to technology, I continue to be amazed at the fact that uh, I'll get letters from people in Australia. I'll get letters from people in the United Kingdom and other countries because they're able to join us on WGN for the streaming part of the technology that is now part of our broadcasting. And uh, so we thank you for joining us, and uh, we have more to do from now till 6 o'clock as we say welcome to Samuelson Says. I am Orion Samuelson, and this week I'm making a political statement. Well, very often I begin, Samuelson says, by telling you this is not a political statement. (laughs) Many of you don't believe me when I say that. But this week I will tell you right away that I am starting, Samuelson says, with a political statement as I once again call on the members of Congress to finally take positive action on the U.S.-Canada-Mexico trade agreement and vote for approval on the replacement for the current North American free trade agreement known as NAFTA. It was put in place in the 1990s during the Clinton administration, and it has served the three countries well by increasing trade, particularly in agricultural products, by billions of dollars. Legislative bodies in Mexico and Canada approved the agreement earlier this year, but we have been waiting for months for the Democratic leadership in the House to bring it to the floor for a vote. I place the blame for not bringing it to a vote on the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, who apparently doesn't know that she represents a district in the number one agricultural state in the nation, California. But judging some of the comments from Speaker Pelosi and what she is saying about this trade agreement, I really don't think she understands that farmers in the Golden State depend more heavily on agricultural trade than farmers in most other states. More than 150 groups, including agriculture and manufacturers, have called for a vote of approval as soon as Possible, so the terms of the new agreement can be put in place by the start of the new crop year. Farmers and ranchers particularly need to know what trade rules they will be dealing with because that could influence their planting decisions. But it appears Speaker Pelosi will not bring it to the floor until she gets her issues answered, basically relating to labor union demands, enforcement rules, and other items that have little or nothing to do with agriculture. So, again, I would direct these remarks to the Democratic leadership in the House. Let's get this agreement approved so that it can go back to the other countries and join them in their approval of the trade agreement. It is vitally important to America's agricultural producers And that's my political statement for this year. My thoughts on Samuelson Says, a presentation of Nextar Media Group. And at uh, 22 minutes before 6 o'clock, we'll take a break, and then we'll come back to talk market activity, particularly in South America when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. I always look forward to the opportunity to visit with Dr. Michael Cordonier of soybeansandcorn.com. He's certainly our specialist in South American agriculture. And, of course, we're ending our growing season. They're starting their growing season. So what's happening in the Southern Hemisphere, Dr. Mike?
2: (laughs) pleasure Orion. well in brazil uh they started kind of slow on the planting uh the rainfall was not very good uh september and october but it did improve during november and right now brazil about 90 percent planted on the soybeans uh, the only couple areas left to plant northeastern brazil and a little bit down in far southern brazil so it started kind of slow but it has gotten better Now, a delayed planting for soybeans really doesn't mean all that much for soybean yields. As long as the rest of the growing season is okay, the soybeans can still do all right yield-wise. I think this, though, is a much more important corn story in Brazil because that delayed planting for the start of the soybeans means that the safinha corn planting next January and February is going to be delayed as well. So there's already concerns that uh, we may not get all the corn planted on time. And the drop dead date, so to speak, is sort of end of February next year. So some of this South America corn is going to be planted late. And that brings me to what I think is the big story in Brazil, and that's the corn story. Corn exports out of Brazil are unbelievable. They're going to be 40, 41 million tons, all-time record. A very strong demand domestically from this uh, increasing ethanol industry in Brazil and the livestock sector. See, China is buying a lot of animal protein from Brazil, so the livestock sector is improving. The ethanol sector, they may use 5 million tons of corn to make ethanol in Brazil. Five years ago, they used zero. So there's very strong demand domestically. Uh, The Brazilian currency has weakened, it's now about 4.2 to the dollar, so that makes Brazilian prices very attractive. And domestic prices in Brazil are strong, really strong, especially for corn.
0: So as we look at the corn and the soybean market and its relationship between Brazil and China, have we seen a lot more exported to that country out of Brazil?
2: Oh, yeah, they exported uh, everything they had, basically, uh, to China. You know, two years ago, it was like uh, 80, a little bit more than 80 million tons. They swept the bins clean uh, a little bit less this year because they just didn't have the supply to export. But uh, 80% of Brazil's exports uh, go to China. And now with uh, the swine uh, problem in China, very strong demand for pork, uh, poultry, beef as well. You know, beef prices in Brazil are at record highs. Uh, never seen this high before for cattle prices in Brazil. So all that means more demand for corn. So there's going to be a problem getting enough corn supply. They're already talking about uh, corn. Uh, Brazil may have to import some corn. Now the first place the import is from Paraguay, right next door in Argentina. There might actually be a little bit of corn imported from the United States into northeastern Brazil, and that's due to the fact that it's probably just cheaper uh, sending a vessel from New Orleans to northeastern Brazil than a bunch of trucks uh, from where the corn is produced in Brazil to northeastern Brazil. So logistics can play a role in that. But uh, let's talk. Uh, let's... Strong all over Brazil.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the transportation challenge that Brazil has had getting stuff to the ports and to the world. Are they making progress on better highways and better transportation systems?
2: Orion, a very astute question. I'm just writing my report for next week. And this week, uh, Brazil announced that they finished paving Highway BR-163 from northern Montegrosso Grosso straight north to the Amazon River. Now, for the last couple of years, there was a 50-kilometer section that had not been asphalted in a small mountainous area, and there was all kinds of problems. And that road was closed for weeks at a time. You know, thousands of the trucks lined up, couldn't get through. Well, finally, after a couple of years of embarrassing news stories, they finally bit the bullet. And they are just now finishing asphalting that road. In fact, the Brazilian president is going to inaugurate the new road sometime in December. So that's a big improvement. Uh, so that means the trucks can go unimpeded to these northern ports in Brazil. So that's a big, big improvement. This is like the second biggest project in Brazil that was completed this year. And also another development. The only railroad in Mato Grosso right now is in the southeast corner of the state. Now, the company that runs the railroad has just been given the authorization to maintain this contract like 30 more years. So they just announced last week as well $15 billion to extend the railroad up into the middle part of Monte Grosso. So that is another big improvement. And eventually, they will build a third a, a, excuse me, a second railroad from northern Monte Grosso Street, north to the Amazon. So there's some big improvements in the Brazilian infrastructure to get this grain from the central part of the country uh, to export facilities. So they're making progress.
0: Are the uh, port facilities continuing to expand on the Amazon? because oh,
2: absolutely. It's yeah. called the Northern Arc of Ports. Uh you know, all the big grain companies, Cargill, Bungie, ADM, all have facilities there. They're expanding all the time. China is investing in new grain terminals, uh, not only along the Amazon, but in far northeastern Brazil. These are ocean ports in northeastern Brazil and at the mouth of the Amazon. So, yes, uh, they're expanding all the time, more and more grain heading north. And in 2019, about 30 million tons of grain went north, and that'll be up to 50 million tons in a year or two as you get some of these projects completed. So that cuts the transportation cost about 40% for producers in sort of central Monte Grosso. Let me give you some prices here. In Montegrosso Grosso right now, corn prices are about $3.35 or $0.50 cents a bushel. Now, it doesn't sound much for United States but the cost of production is about $2 to two and a quarter a bushel. So they're making money, good money, on corn production in Mato Grosso. Soybean prices right now, Mato Grosso, uh, maybe around $9 a bushel. That is way above last year. So they're making money with the soybeans as well. So uh, it's kind of good news for Brazilian farmers
0: are we going to plant more soybeans in brazil when we really get going on the planting season
2: Uh, yes i got the brazil soybean area up about two and a half percent might even go a little bit more than that with these good prices Uh, but i think most of the commitment is already done for the soybeans and i got the corn acreage up about five percent now you got to remember only about 27% of Brazil's corn is full-season corn planted now. Over 70% of the corn is safinha production planted after the soybeans are harvested. So it's yet to be determined uh, the full extent of the corn planted acreage because it's going to be you know in a couple of months. But prices are strong. Uh, everybody's anticipating good uh, acreage advancement, but I'm sort of torn on the South production. Yes, prices are good, but on the other side, it's going to be planted late. Now, if you get to, say, March 10th, and if the prices are good for corn, and if it looks like the rainy season is going to extend, then you plant your corn later than what you would like to. Like I said, the drop-dead date is like early March. But if you get to early March next year and the corn prices are good, but the rains are already sort of tapering off, then you probably won't risk planting your corn. So the total corn acreage is still sort of yet to be determined in Brazil.
0: Brazil has gotten a lot of negative publicity because of the fires that are consuming the areas around the Amazon. Is that having any uh, effect on agriculture?
2: Okay, uh, to put it in perspective, over 80% of those fires are cattle ranchers burning off dry pastures uh, for the start of the rainy season. See, the grass gets very tall and very stemmy, so they burn it off, and then you get new green lush growth uh, for the cattle to eat. So the vast majority of those fires were for, like I said, pasture clearing, uh, almost none was for clearing land for, say, soybeans and corn. The land clearing fires, mostly by subsistent farmers, who clear little patches of slash and burn type of agriculture, they clear little patches and grow something for their family to eat. You know, some rice and beans and a uh, few cattle, things like that. So, the very few of those fires were for, like, soybean production or corn production, very, very, very few but it just paints the whole country in a negative picture yes. so unfortunately it, it you know paints the whole country now the new president of brazil bolsonaro he is very much in favor of uh, expanding agricultural production in the amazon and on indigenous lands as well so he is uh sort of contributing to the negative image uh environmental image in brazil
0: so let me briefly ask you about politics in brazil and argentina because that usually comes to play sooner or later in the trade situation doesn't it oh
2: argentina it's going to come very quick you know the new president um alberto fernandez takes power december 10th and his vice president is mrs Kirshner, the former president for two terms before mr Macri. so Everybody's worried in Argentina that the new president will increase export taxes on commodities. And right now, the export tax on soybeans out of Argentina is 25%, and for corn, it's 7%. And the speculation is that when he takes power, they're going to increase the soybean export tax to 35%, and the corn export tax to 15%. Now, that's speculation. We don't know what his policy is going to be yet. He has not even named his uh, environmental ministers or his agricultural ministers. So the farmers in Argentina are already proactive. They are reducing their intended corn acreage and switching some of that over to soybeans. And in fact, the Buenos Aires Grain Exchange and the uh, federal government of Argentina just last week reduced their... Corn anticipated acreage 100 100,000 hectares, and added 100,000 hectares to soybeans. Now, won't make much difference for soybeans because just 100,000 hectares is not very much compared to 17.5 million hectares of soybeans. But for corn, the area is only going to be a little bit more than 6 million hectares. So, if you take off 100,000 hectares, that is kind of significant for the corn. So, yes, politics is. Uh, a big player, especially in Argentina, and everybody's afraid that Mrs. Kirchner is going to have a lot of influence in the new administration. And when she was president, she fought with the farmers, you know, day and night, so to speak, uh, on agriculture policy in Argentina.
0: Well, in our next visit, sir, I have a big question that you can work on until uh, we have you with us on the air again. Is there ever going to be a day when I won't have to mention China when I'm doing an agricultural market report?
2: Never for the rest of your lifetime, Orion.
0: <laughs> well, we'll talk is. about uh, we'll talk about that in our next visit. But uh, Dr. Mike, always a pleasure to get your look, a personal look at South America. And uh, you have a great holiday season. And we'll be talking to you again next year.
2: Uh, My pleasure, Orion. Anytime.
0: A visit with Dr. Michael Cordonier, soybeansandcorn.com, here on the Saturday Morning Show. We'll bring to an end the Saturday morning show with a story that came out of Russia this week that I find absolutely fascinating. Around this time of the year, life in Russia does swing from one extreme to the other, from sunshine to snow, green to gray, apricots to atrophied apples, and the adjustment can cause emotional strain and illnesses in the best of us. But it's not apparently only the humans who suffer. According to veterinary experts, the country's 20 million bovine population is particularly susceptible to about of the winter blues. But now scientists in Russia believe they have a solution to their Russian winter problem in the form of virtual reality glasses. They're going to put virtual reality glasses on cows. The exact design of the prototype kit is top secret, but according to local media, the wraparound glasses boast a unique form that has been adapted to the cow's anatomical structure. and They draw on experimental data that shows cows are better at processing red than they are blues and greens, and as a result, the movie show reels tend to focus on grass, the lovely green summer meadowy sort that they'll be showing on virtual reality in the cold Russian winter. And a farm in northwest Moscow has already begun testing the prototypes with positive results. <laughs> Oh, science and experiments and everything else. It'll be interesting to see if this one really works. Just a quick note on markets. We saw wheat futures up 18 and three quarter cents a bushel yesterday. Corn up seven and three quarter cents a bushel at the Chicago Board of Trade as we came to the end of the market week with a strong showing for the wheat market. Well, that's about our time for this morning. As always, we thank you for joining us here on WGM for this weekly visit and discussion of agricultural activity. My thanks to uh, Bob Ferguson, who does all of the engineering work back in Chicago, and I'm still broadcasting from the desert in the southwest, the Phoenix Scottsdale Area. We'll be heading back to the Midwest early next week, and we'll be there, of course, throughout the holiday season. But again, news time coming up, and thank you for joining us here on the Saturday Morning Show.
2: Orion Samuelson keeps you connected to the world of business and agriculture on WGN. Hear his reports weekday mornings on the Steve Cochran Show and during the noon hour on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Plus, catch Orion and Max on Saturday mornings at 5 a.m. only on Chicago's WGN Radio 720.